Hello, friends of Bunga. This is BungaCast. Welcome back, everyone. This is the Global Politics Podcast at the end of the end of history. We're recording this on Friday, the 9th of September, and I am on this date, Alex Hochuli, as is George Hoare, uh, very much George Hoare. I think so. Uh, I can confirm this yeah, is the case, good. indeed. Uh, and Philip Cunliffe, I think, is also uh, himself, although seemingly a, a slightly more irate version than his usual self, Phil. I'm here and I'm very calm. I'm not irate at all. But as you should know, Alex, when you accuse somebody of being irate or suggest they should calm down, it's one way to aggravate them. But thank you for having me on the show. No, good. We're, good. we're delighted you could join us. <laughs> all right. So, Phil, today we're talking about Gorbachev, the death of Gorbachev, uh, a 20th century figure. Phil. Yeah. So we, funnily enough, I mean, we've been planning, obviously, to do something on um, Gorbachev's death for a while. And then uh, just as we got to recording, uh, the Queen, the British Queen, died in uh, the last uh, 24 hours, um, which I guess at some level, and we'll do, we'll be having a separate um, episode uh, reflecting on um, her death and also the funeral arrangements and the public mourning and what have you. But I thought it was, uh, I mean, I suppose it's not inappropriate in one sense, at least, given that um, they're both uh, iconic 20th century figures um, and very much I think their deaths indicate also the not only kind of all sorts of, um, you know, have all sorts of symbolic resonances for the country's concern. But I think also with them dying, you can say the 20th century is definitively coming to an end. Yeah, I mean, it's, this is basically a, a Bunga miniseries on death. So we're taking a dark turn. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I have got a theory, actually, that um, famous deaths especially like politically important deaths, even if they're of old age, uh, a company or even presage um, tumultuous moments, you know, those uh, weeks where decades happen. Because as we put it in, in our book, even, you know, 2016 saw all these kind of famous deaths, many kind of, you know, cherished celebrities and, you know, famous people like Muhammad Ali and uh, I don't know, Nancy Reagan died. I can't remember who else anyway. And then, of course, you got Trump and Brexit um, or Brexit and Trump to say them in the correct order. And it just feels like one of these moments in uh, in 2022 as well. Uh, Gorbachev dies, Queen dies. I don't know. Maybe it's just me being um, on edge about the Brazilian election. So that makes it makes it feel like a much more charged atmosphere. But then you got the energy crisis coming in Europe. So, you know, things are happening. Two two swallows do not a summer make, though. We've only had two. We haven't had any any Bowie type type uh, cultural figures die Touchwood um, so far this year. So I don't know. I I, I see what you're, you're more saying, spit though. than swallow. Okay. Um, anyway, I, back back to you, Phil, to <laughs> to to get us into the actual meat meat of the discussion, not the uh, amuse bouche of these puns. Yeah. So the um, Alexi Alexian puns rather than Georgian puns for a change or jokes. Anyway, but the so. An iconic 20th century figure, but also I suppose maybe this does connect to um, the nonsense that Alex was just spouting. It connects, I suppose, in the sense of the Ukraine war, um, in the sense that you have a genuine kind of catastrophe and the extent to which Gorbachev's um, failures, his political failures, are um, well, the Ukraine war and the crises around it and Putin's regime in Russia are a consequence of his political failures at the end of the Cold War, the way in which his specific role in managing or failing to manage the end of the Cold War. So there is a connection. And also the failure, obviously, to meaningfully democratize Russia 
as well as the legacy of conflicts that came, um, the legacy of conflict, territorial and border conflicts that came in the wake of the collapse of the USSR. So, I mean, in one level, it's difficult to understate the significance of Gorbachev's um, death, I suppose, in terms of the fact that he's the last premier of the USSR and as such, the last um, public political figure or, um, well, the last uh, po political leader who has a direct connection, I suppose, to the Russian Revolution and its failure. And so to that extent, I think, you know, reflecting on his death I, is useful, I think, for um, for anyone who has an interest in the Russian Revolution and for anyone on the left. So to kind of hook the, or rather to structure what we were going to chat about, um, there's a very good piece from a few years back now in um, the London Review of Books, which was a review by Neil Asherson of a review of a biography of Gorbachev by William Taubman. And this was published in the book itself um, was published in 2017. And the review came at the end of that year. And Neil Asherson is uh, one of the LRB's, um, their in-house commentator in Eastern Europe, and was very well traveled around Eastern Europe and the former USSR during the Cold War. And one of the most important things, I think, which come through in the piece was the way in which all of Gorbachev's efforts at the end of the towards the end of the USSR, all of his efforts ended up undermining the power which he needed to affect the changes that he wanted to affect. And so on the one yeah. hand, he was supposedly kind of rely or seeking to reform the USSR in a democratic direction, but required could only rely upon the decayed remnants of a hostile and suspicious part political party whose power he was trying to constrain, but whose power he needed in order to effect the changes that he wanted. And obviously at the time he was constantly squeezed by the diehard Stalinists or Stalinists on the one hand and the radicals on the other who didn't, um, who constantly wanted him to go further. At the same time, you had the kind of the national movements um, that were breaking through. And one of the points that Asherson makes, which I think is important even to this day is um the fact that it wasn't just kind of independence movements in the Baltic states or in Ukraine that were tugging at the you know tugging the USSR apart, but also in Russia itself, as Yeltsin was mm. um, asserting a Russian national interest that was separate from that of the Soviet Union. Yeah, I think it's worth maybe just at this point at the beginning spelling out what the mainstream Western narrative is on Gorbachev, just so we can then, if we want to try to puncture that. Um, you know, set, set, yeah. that we set out on the, on the same um, from the same platform, and I think my my. I'm just curious. I, I'm just curious. So before you talk about it, Alex, I'm just curious because you guys are um, a bit younger than Bangadadi. Do you guys have any memories of Gorbachev from the end of the Cold War? Vaguely, I mean, I remember the Berlin Wall coming down, and be, just because my parents were talking about it. Um, but uh, no, no, I mean. I, I remember him being like a figure, almost a figure of fun growing up, you know, like on kind of news weekly magazines and stuff like that and the stain on his head. But that's about it. I have uh, no, I have basically no, no memories. Um, I can't, I don't think he was a pivotal uh, kind of figure in the, um, the childhood of a, of a young, a a young gammon, boy. A gammon from, childhood. From Southern England. Um, <laughs> Oh, what a dreaming surprise. about traveling the world or whatever <laughs> no i didn't um i, I don't think uh he he was he didn't loom large in my imagination 
but so I mean, I guess the 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 image of of him was you know this reformer who tried to reform, but actually he failed, and actually his failure is what made him good. That he was this kind of good guy. He didn't force the issue either in terms of trying to retain the integrity of the USSR. Um, he cooperated with the US, and actually it all fell apart. And that was and the good thing that he did was that he let it fall apart without provoking or you know um, heating up a possible civil war. Yeah, it's interesting because, like you say, the public memory in the West is certainly still very much when I think of this um, kind of noble but flawed and ultimately impotent idealist. Um, and usually those kinds of characters, I don't think they're given such, um, you know, usually they're cast, I mean, they can be cast as kind of dangerous utopians, which is perhaps closer to the public memory of Gorbachev in Russia and his continuing unpopularity in parts of the former USSR, especially Russia. Um, but outside this kind of um, flawed or impotent idealism is seen as his um, is seen as a redeeming quality in the West yeah. and in Eastern Europe in particular. So, I mean, he he um, I, I don't remember it, but I do know of it. The Gorby mania, like he was um, not quite a Beatles level figure, but time he was like man of the decade of the 1980s in in Time magazine, you know, a popular figure in the west a seen as a, a kind of a, a statesman in an extremely difficult position and an irrational kind of context trying to trying to stay true to his morals but yeah the much much less popular in um in russia and i i saw in in my researches um <clears throat> a survey from 2017 that almost half of russian russian citizens in 2017 had a negative opinion towards gorbachev 30% indifferent and only 15 positive opinion so it's like that's a pretty that's those pretty terrible numbers um for for any politician uh certainly not man of the decade material um and you know this there is a reason for this obviously his his impact on uh on soviet union or, and on russians is very different to his to, to what his historic role was for for the west and i guess particularly um america and their allies yeah, and I guess those figures are the inverse of, um, I mean, probably not exactly correlated, inversely correlated, but, you know, uh, to the figures on people who have nostalgia for the Soviet Union or lament its breakup. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I mean, th th there's obviously quite, all, yeah, probably obvious inverse correlation there. I think it's also very, you know, I mean, it's obviously connected to the terrible times that Russia endured in the 1990s. Um, and it's one thing is always like, it's always, I mean, this is a political science colleague, friend of mine, who's also uh, an expert in Russia. And he says it's always important to kind of parse apart these polls, because if you ask kind of Russians certain kinds of questions about whether they want, you know, democratic representation, freedom of speech and so on, um, they'll say yes. But if you ask them for their views of democracy, kind of just flat out, um, they'll be negative. And obviously that's partly the, you know, that's an artifact of the way in which questions are framed. So that the demand, you know, if you understand the polls properly, the demand for, um, for uh, you know, collective self-government more than they enjoy at the moment is still there. But if you ask them about what they think about liberal democracy, then obviously the public memory and the living memory is that of the 1990s and the chaos that came with um, shock therapy, for which uh, Gorbachev obviously still um, takes much of the blame. So 
The other point, which I think is worth making from the Taugman piece, um, and I know, I mean, there was plenty of, diff, you know, there were plenty of kind of obits from all, all different ends of the political spectrum, and we'll bring some more of them into the discussion. But one thing that I think is worth mentioning from the, um, sorry, the Asherson review of the Taugman book is that how little he cared about Eastern Europe. And I thought this was interesting because he's still kind of venerated and fated in Eastern Europe. And with his death, I saw lots of photos. You know, there's like a, a bust of him in East Germany where people were laying down flowers and what have you in kind of memory of the fact that he didn't send in the tanks. But what comes across in the review in the review is how much his energy was focused on the USSR and how indifferent essentially he was to um to the uh, you know to kind of dealing with the problems and the the kind of the millstone that was the East European regimes by that yeah. point. And that's something which, um, well, we discussed and listeners will have heard if they listen to the episode we did with Fritz Bartel on, on his book, The Triumph of Broken Promises. Um, and that makes the point, in, in not in kind of such biographical fine-grained detail, but looking more broadly at how willing Gorbachev was to cast off the Eastern European republics as a means of trying to save not Russia, but but the USSR, the Soviet Union, um, by um, basically deleveraging its the, the USSR's commitments to um, its 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 sort of allies in Eastern Europe. Um, but it's interesting to read the Ashton Review, kind of hearing that kind of confirmed, right? Like in yeah. terms of Gorbachev's yeah. own, um, you know, memoirs and writings and and things he told friends at the time and so on that he actually just genuinely didn't didn't care, which I guess would. Um, at least following the Western narrative, speak well of him because you know he, he, this would be him not having imperial ambitions of control over uh, the Eastern European yeah. republics, and seeing Hanukkah as a as a dinosaur and Ceausescu as a got an evil goblin. I mean, <laughs> I, love, I it, laughed at evil goblin when I read that. That's good, great. But yeah, I mean, I, it, it, I guess it's all what comes through in the review is that it's partly indifference, but it's also a judgment that these fraternal ruling parties are a liability holding the Soviet Union back um, in its, you know, in its goals and its kind of progress. So he's, he's, he then, I guess, arrives at a position of like, um, perestroika and glasnost in in one country as, as it were like it, he he just he doesn't seem or at least the, this uh biography seems to suggest he doesn't really yeah he doesn't really see that there's any any need to kind of make these arguments more widely um there's no need to kind of i don't know to link up with with the um, the communist parties in in all these parts of west of eastern europe um and yeah and i don't i I guess that exactly as you were saying, Alex, that gives a very different, um, you'd, that decision would be given a very different judgment um, depending on whether you're from the Soviet Union or the, the Western point of view. And more, I think also, I mean, also interestingly Stalinist as well, right? I mean, a further kind of twist. I mean, this isn't obviously Asherson or Taubman's conclusion, but also the kind of the continuing, the continuation of the project of socialism in one country. Um, taken to you know a further twist this time, which is rather than military occupation of Eastern Europe, jettisoning even military occupation in Eastern Europe in the favor of pursuing um, you know Soviet Russian national interest effectively. Um, and so you know I think that that despite you know all the kind of um, the kind of adulation and all the democratic idealism that he was supposedly motivated by, I think that the continuation of that kind of um, politics, I think, is worth um, bearing in mind. 
and at the same time failure you know of his great kind of uh european home ideal and we spoke about this when we had um uh, Richard Sacco on some episodes back to talk about the Ukraine war, where he was saying that, in fact, Gorbachev's vision was the only one that would have avoided the situation that we're in at the moment. Um, and while I think, you know, I'm sympathetic to the idea that the end of the Cold War was a missed opportunity for a pan-European political order that would that would have um, junked not only the Warsaw Pact, but also NATO. And I think that would have avoided the conflict that we're in at the moment in Ukraine. Um, but notwithstanding that, another detail that came through the the Asherson review, which I thought was, you know, kind of really remarkable and one that he doesn't make enough of, was that Gorbachev, Gorbachev conceded to German reunification, um, but with and also kind of extracted the promise about NATO expansion mm. past Germany. But he conceded to Germany kind of having, you know, kind of choosing if it wished to to join NATO. But what's remarkable about this is like the, he didn't get it written down. You know, it was yeah. all kind of informal kind of agreement in the summits with um, James Baker and George W. Bush and so on. And they didn't actually formalize the agreement. And this is kind of said in the same breath as venerating this great kind of a flawed and tragic statesman when it seems to me like... Um, I mean, that's kind of profoundly the degree of political naivety and weakness to go into a meeting with those guys, agree something so important for the future of Europe and not to get it written down. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's pretty remarkable. As, especially as the Americans, I mean, especially now we know historically that they were ready to to smash. I mean, that they, they were going to extract everything that they could, um, having seen Gorbachev and actually already um, having perceived him as weak well before um, the the dawn of the 90s. And by the time kind of that rolls around, 89, 90, 91 rolls around, they're, they're ready to poach, right? Um, yeah. And I think, and I think that they, they very, they go, I think that, and what's striking in the Asherson review is that they were, the Americans were shocked at how little they actually had to push for things. They're like, <laughs> you know, if it's going to be this easy, let's just take what we take, what we can. Um, yeah. yeah. I guess there's a, there's a kind of life lesson for us all there. Verbal contracts, not worth the paper they're not printed on. Um, but I guess the, the deeper question is like, why was he so, why was he so weak and like how, how, how was it that the Americans could could observe this and and um, act accordingly? And I think that the the major point, and you said this in your introduction, Phil, that comes through in this review is how the he undermines the own the basic Gorbachev under through the changes that he made, he undermined the basis of his own power. I mean, and this is this is a kind of um, leads you to a like two questions. I think one is like why why did he do this if he could see this like erosion of his own position you know why why keep going with this and the second one is could anybody like given that he made all of these um you know mistakes bad choices could anybody actually have reformed the soviet Mm, union if they had understood the centrality although the at that point pretty like worn down and sclerotic nature of the of the party and 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 kind of had a greater political understanding of what their basis of the power that they would have needed to uh, carry through the changes yeah. actually was. Well, I like, so I think it's a little bit paradoxical actually, because one thing that's always said about him and it's clear in the ashes and review and elsewhere is that Gorbachev was very much a party man, right? He rose through the ranks from nowhere from 
rural poverty and so on. Um, and the party was his kind of whole life. In fact, that he he was of a generation that hadn't really experienced the revolution or the 1920s, right? So he was quite, he was much younger actually than any of yeah. the, like Andropov or any of the other guys around him and let alone all the, you know, Khrushchev and the Brezhnev who preceded him. So yeah, yeah so it, it he grew up in a, in a world in which he only knew the Soviet Union and the rules by which it worked. And so he's obviously a party figure. At the same time, he's so callous about the need for the party to carry through what he wants to achieve and to 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 for the party to keep hold of the pace of change. And I mean, I think he, in the in review, it, it does show Gorbachev at certain times at pains to try to control the pace of change. And of course, the Western narrative is always, ah, once you start to open up this rotten system, the whole thing falls apart. I wouldn't have such a deterministic reading on that. Um, but what I think is clear is that, yeah, Gorbachev didn't take the need for, to retain control over the Communist Party seriously enough. In fact, he probably should have been uh, Stalinist at home and, and uh, you know, libertarian abroad. Not abroad so much, but he should have been perhaps needed, would have needed to, to, in a way to answer George's question, maintain a much firmer grip of the party internally for to be able to be much more liberal um, within, you know, Russian society, to reform society. But he was liberal abroad, right? I mean, that's the point. I don't mean abroad. I don't mean literally abroad. Um, abroad, the USSR. I mean outside of of the party structure, right? So, but we're still within the Soviet Union. So, yeah. if he wanted to liberalize society and even and carry out some market reforms, he probably would have needed to have a very firm grip over certainly the in, within the leadership of the party um, and probably down its capillaries as well. I mean, I would be, I'm I'm more cynical or skeptical, I suppose, about what prospects there were for meaningful reform of a structure that was as rotten through as the Soviet Union was, not only the Communist Party, but just the, you know, basic dysfunction of the entire kind of economic structure of the USSR, you know, and uh, that decay, I think, was... Um, you know, is very, I mean, very evident even to those outside of, uh, you know, kind of it was obviously kind of a feature of um, of uh, Russian life, I think. And that was evident to, to everyone. I mean, even as a kid, I think I can remember, you know, that that was evident from the way in which the greater access that was coming with news and stories from Soviet Russia at the time as the Cold War wound down. You know, I mean, I think that was uh, obvious. Um I suppose I wanted also to, uh, well, to bring in. I know, I know there was a there was a review of, um, or rather, an obit by Gijek, if you can use the word obit, um, in Compact, which I know you were kind of um, you were quite struck by Alex. But also, I wanted to talk a bit about him as Gorbachev as a, uh, Gorbachev as a figure in not just in Western public memory, um, but also in kind of the Western left's view of him which I think is slightly more complex because there was so much um, that I still think there is plenty of reverence for Gorbachev um, as the man who brought the Cold War to an end, as the man who liberated Eastern Europe, as the man who ensured we didn't end up in a nuclear war. And it seems to me like that is kind of a backhanded way for the Western left, I think, to continue affirming its um, faith, I think, in the USSR, in a sense, that it was capable of producing good men, that it still had these kinds of heroic, tragic figures, um, that there was still kind of the capacity, even if fa ultimately failed, but there was still the capacity for reform and transformation. 
even though you know like and this again comes through in the Asherson review that the that kind of um churn that attempt at kind of um bureaucratic churn and renewal had the long pedigree in the Soviet Union going right back to Khrushchev's own speech right the the secret party speech yeah. uh, the 20th party 20th congress speech party congress speech in 1956 where he um initiated the kind of de-Stalinization. So, I mean, Gorbachev wasn't the first to try to reform the Soviet system and to fail. And and I think that, you know, is um, so the kind of fixing on him as this uh, as this kind of great flawed hero who um, who failed to reform. This is out the fact that he was in a long line of failed reformers, essentially. Well, I think been trying be- to reform every year since Stalin died. I think there was perhaps an element of reading history backwards there as well in that vision, because the it would proceed as follows: this was the end of the eighties was the time for reform. Um, this was the time to do it, and therefore there was some wind behind Gorbachev's back, and he tried to do what was necessary and failed, but at least you know didn't cause a civil war. Um, but he was an idealist, and you know he had published views. Um, propounding ideals which sounded pretty good, especially for a um, a left that had already long left behind Stalinism in 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 its kind of hardest form. Certainly, you know whether it's Euro communism, the New Left, and so on. And but but that all presumes that this was a moment for reform, right? But the only reason we think of it as a moment for reform is because of what happened afterwards and the falling apart of the Soviet Union. Of course, at the time, if you look at the kind of economic kind of fundaments of what was going on then, the writing was pretty much on the wall, certainly by the mid-80s. Again, we can refer back to the discussion with, with Fritz Bartel. And, um, but that, I think, wasn't in people's consciousness at the time. In fact, very much the opposite. Everyone was surprised by the sudden fall of, of the whole system right across eastern europe so um i think there's an element of reading you know i i I see what you're saying phil in terms of identifying a kind of identifying in the left at the time in a sense or not even at the time but even throughout the 90s a sense that um the soviet union still could produce good men effectively but i also think that there's an element of of uh yeah reading history backwards and assuming that it was a moment for reform only because reform then came afterwards yeah to return to the the compact piece that that phil mentioned the zizek i think it's a pretty yeah it, it's not a it's not necessarily very um flattering or positive uh but quite or detailed you know, on gorbachev's life for that or, matter no i mean so that you know if you want to know about him growing up and and driving a tractor and and getting getting um hench and um winning a labor medal then you can read a biography um, but Zizek's, you know, it's a philosophical um, judgment, which is that his biological death was his second death. And he died symbolically with the fall of the Soviet Union. And f- he was fully, I think it's a really good phrase. He's a purely or, or a good um, way to capture it, that his role was a purely negative one. Like he he, he um, tore down the wall. He, he began the disappearance of communism. He kind of like if he has any kind of world historical a, a failure or world historical achievement of any sort, it's a, it's a negative one. He didn't, you know, he didn't um, 
his his life's worth work was the undoing of of um of something else so i think it's a i think it's a kind of i guess it raises the stakes or the, the question of like how important a figure he was and i think you know that's a, the right way to to capture it that he you know that period between the fall of the berlin wall and his his um biological death is a is a kind of a strange one because the you know what what do you do in once you kind of uh set in motion this is this world historic change and you're just like you know just still alive but you sell pizzas raise on detra sell pizzas <laughs> which yeah, is what I he mean, did why not why not there's there's nothing uh, you know there's nothing else to do um might as well just yeah make a buck while you can but but, but there, 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 there is a podcast point. <laughs> yeah that should have been oh, it yeah, wasn't that desperate um there is another point I, that Zizek alludes to and I th- that we should discuss as well is the fact of china right and the, and the different course taken by china um and i think that's also where gorbachev is often discussed uh in terms in in contrast of course again from a, a kind of pro-western perspective um i'm sure that uh many would have hoped that perhaps deng would have followed more the Gorbachev uh, format of trying to pursue, of insisting on political liberalization um, with or even before economic liberalization rather than the Chinese model of retaining absolute political control while pursuing market reforms, just because that would have meant China falling apart and would have been prey again to, to Western interests uh, much earlier. So, you know, I guess, you know, Gorbachev can be celebrated because he you know, brought brought the brought the whole house down upon his ears. But you know, that's obviously from the perspective of Western interests. Um, I don't know. So, what what do we think? I guess about the the comparison with with China, and I guess with 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 the whole Deng period. Yeah, it's an I mean, it's an enormous question, and in some ways, it's the kind of the sixty four you know sixty four million dollar question. And this is what we I mean, we touched upon this with Branko Milanovic. Um, and his claim that ultimately Chinese communism is more world historically significant um, in the long run, more than the Russian Revolution or the Soviet Union, because of how it, um, you know, the fact that it kind of um, brought so much of humanity into rough convergence with the industrialized powers of the West, and that was the ultimate achievement of the Chinese Revolution. So. I mean, I'm not, you know, again, I think they're, so what I understood Zizek to be saying with Deng was the, that they didn't, they didn't kind of undercut the source of their political power. Um, and so that this is different from that Gorbachev kind of called too much into question. Um, and that on the one hand, he went too far and not far enough because he was still saw himself as kind of being in the Leninist legacy. And the only thing that he wasn't, the only kind of figure from the Russian Revolution that wasn't rehabilitated through the period of Gorbachev's reforms was Trotsky. Um, And Zizek makes the point that Trotsky was willing to consider on the eve of his death, at least, and when the Second World War broke out, Trotsky was willing to consider something that, um, you know, nobody else on the left has um, considered seriously, which is um, what if the proletariat is incapable of constituting itself independently constituting itself um as a political you know political power unto itself to capture and uh, transform state power in a lasting and durable way that it can you know that it's able to maintain itself its own rule um mm. 
and he says this is the one thing which no one was able to um countenance but it's a good i mean it's a good quote from trotsky but i don't know that it matters much in the context of gorbachev given the fact that this you know soviet working class such as it was had abandoned any you know kind of claim to rule in any meaningful way so many years yeah previously. by that point yeah yeah I mean, I think the, the the Trotsky quote, apparently someone usefully pointed this out to me on Twitter when I share the Zizek piece, that that quote is abridged and removes a, an important clause before Trotsky considers the possible incapacity of the of the proletariat to rule directly, um, which was that uh, this was pr the proviso that there wouldn't be world revolution and that then it would stagnate into a bureaucratized state. That then, if that 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 would be the condition on which it would be possible to imagine whether the proletariat wouldn't be able to rule directly. So anyway, it's an important qualification actually. Um, if you want to get into that. Um, well, because it, he's not making a general to reinforce Gijak's point. He's not making a general point about um, which would be a, a not just anti-communist and anti-Marxist one, but potential. Yeah, well, certainly that. Um, but but even to a certain degree, an anti-democratic one, or certainly a, a, a more pessimistic view, effectively, um, that the working class can't rule. Right. Um, and that people aren't interested in rule and just want to be just are happy to be ruled. Um, and that's not the point that Trotsky uh, is making. Or it's a much more um, hedged point and historically specific one. But it's uh, I, I guess, you know, not to move too far away from Gorbachev, but it is, a, you know, it's a pretty it's a pretty even asking that question is is, I guess, moving towards putting the central article of faith of of communism in in question but on on this point about rehabilitating um previous figures i think zizek has a really good or he gets um the importance of deng's assessment of mao that is like 70 percent positive 30 percent negative and this is like a very useful formula because it means that you don't have to you don't have to disavow um the authority and the political power which stems from this from this leader um his body on in a in a mausoleum and his image on every banknote still in in um <clears throat> in china but you can also then have some distance from some of the the worst excesses and so this is the way you by having this kind of overall positive but but slightly ambivalent um uh, relationship to the past this is the way that you uh retain the power required to make the radical changes so i think that's that kind of uh, balancing act which is much more difficult or for for gorbachev because precisely of, of trotsky um not to mention stalin and lenin but trotsky kind of illustrates that you you know there are there are more figures in the soviet pantheon so to have a to have that um you're kind of forced to choose between you know choose your fighter and say which one is the um is the the, the lineage that you that you most truly embody or accept so I think it is a you know I think it is a good a good line that um that Zizek has on on this. Yeah. So I, I just on that specifically, I, I dug up the quote that uh, the Hello Freaks tweeted at me, which was useful. Um, this is Trotsky saying an analogous result might occur in the event that the proletariat of advanced capitalist countries, having conquered power, should prove incapable of holding it and surrender it, as in the USSR, to a privileged bureaucracy. Then we would be compelled to acknowledge that the reason for the bureaucratic relapse is rooted not in the backwardness of the country, that is Russia, and not in the imperialist environment, 
but in the congenital incapacity of the proletariat to become a ruling class. Then it would be necessary in retrospect to establish that in its fundamental traits, the present USSR was the precursor of a new exploiting regime on an international scale. So again, it, it, it would be that the proletariat would be able to hold power if... In the West. If, but if, the if, is... if they did the same in the West and then failed, right? So it's yeah, very conditional. So, yeah, it is. It's conditional. And that is that is a useful um it's a useful clarification um i mean uh, it's yeah. good when it's good when on twitter people you're usefully point things out i correct you <laughs> well I, i'm you know well, it's, it's, better it's, than, it's helpful it's helpful it's better than than abuse and the usual kind of twitter fare um so i mean i think i would say you know like it's i mean i tweeted you know the most uh the most overrated leader in human history after winston churchill and I think I would stand by that um, in the sense that he has, you know, like I say, he's kind of has this tremendous reverence in the West for reasons that don't speak to his actual world historic, world historic role, but more to the fact that he's associated with Western victory in the Cold War. Hmm. Um, and, you know, I don't I mean, I don't think that forces you to go to the opposite extreme um, and simply endorse him as this um kind of catastrophist who yeah. plunged you know russia's living standards into chaos and and misery because i think that would be to take too much you know that would be to take too much away from jeffrey Sachs and his ilk so yeah you know all thing but not you know it's, it's a bit like it's about like liverpool fans celebrating harry Maguire as the greatest ever man united player you know um i was really... <laughs> i was actually thinking of like he is the sort like gorbachev is a good loser he's the sort of like player you want to play against because he's you know he accepts accepts defeat handshake at the end you know half a half a mm. shandy provided to the to the visiting team at the end of the, the match and it's like yeah and but do you want that as your as your captain and how, yeah. how, do you want harry Maguire as the united captain i think liverpool fans would give a very different exactly. answer to united yeah. fans but I, I mean, sorry, Phil, I had interrupted you to, to make that silly point, but um, you're blaming Sachs. We, we should talk a little bit about Yeltsin, I think, in this. Um, yeah, or indeed up. Yeltsin too, yeah. Um, and I mean, you know, so you, this kind of um, charismatic and populist figure that according to according to um, Asherson's review of the Taubman was instrumental in heading off the coup. Um, that was uh, attempting to reverse the disintegration of the USSR and that they came reasonably close, or at least, you know, they were um, unlucky in some important ways. And that Yeltsin was the kind of, um, you know, was uh, remarkable in kind of how he managed to turn the situation around. Again, in kind of total contrast to the figure that he would become, kind of the stumbling, you know, geriatric alcoholic who is um, Clinton stooge, essentially, in Russia. But there's an interesting point here as well about who, what audience they were playing to, right? Because Gorbachev was a a, a party figure, you know, as we've already discussed, um, born and bred in the party. That's all he knows. That's he knows how to work it, but uh, not entirely clear if he knows how to address the public at large, for example, in a kind of more democratic sense. Whereas Yeltsin was very good at that, right? And it, I think there's a, it's an interesting moment there and the shift towards the kind of breakup of the Soviet Union and then also the the, the kind of downfall of the Communist Party itself of um, of what arena you're able to operate in a, as a politician. And suddenly you have this new arena in which you have to address the public in a more uh, direct sense in, in a less controlled 
environment and one where there's free media and so on. And, and Yeltsin was able to, at the very least, make use of that moment. I don't think, I don't know if he was particularly skilled. I guess he had some charisma, um, but yeah, whereas but Gorbachev what, wasn't. Well, what I think, but what, what he gets, it's not so, I mean, it, it's that he spoke in the language of Russia, I think, is the point that comes across in the review. So that Yeltsin was willing to talk in terms of the Russian people and the Russian people's interests, whereas Gorbachev was this more kind of, by this point, this more, you know, cosmopolitan figure. And then he felt more at home in kind of summits with great, powerful Western leaders or even kind of, you know, uh, chatting reform with Soviet dissidents like Andrei Sakharov. But the more basic kind of um, demotic uh, demands, like you say, the more kind of rough and tumble of the new kind of politics that was emerging from the failure of the or the disintegration of the USSR, he was not really capable of uh, adapting himself to that. Right. But, and, but but this is what's interesting, actually, it just occurred to me, you're saying, you know, he was more at home in international conferences, but he obviously wasn't very good at those either, because, <laughs> you know, he 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 let a lot get past him, right? He didn't, um, he, it's not yeah, like he negotiated NATO, hard for Yeah, for, NATO for expansion, needed. yeah. I mean, no, that's true, which is, I suppose, why, you know, why he was uh, so, and again, it's, you know, essentially that judgment of him as this wonderful kind of if um, tragic figure. Well, it seems to me it's a mistake to take, you know, kind of um, the Western view in it. Um, and he does bear, if he doesn't bear failure, you know, if you can't, if you can't put Jeffrey Sachs's flaws onto Gorbachev, um, I think you can say that he bears some of the, some of the failure of um, letting NATO expansion happen eastwards that would uh, lead to the total kind of undercutting of his dream of a pan-European a new pan-European order. Okay, I think uh, we very much like the USSR are uh, crumbling under the weight of our own contradictions and we're reaching an end to this episode. Um, but uh, just just final thoughts or questions We lasted for an consider. hour. The USSR lasted for <laughs> over seven years. Yeah, um, uh, crumbling under the weight of my own contradictions. I mean, is that a description of a bad hangover? I don't know. Um, yeah, but to return to the, to the man, the man himself, I think the, um, I think that the Zizek judgment ultimately is, is right. Or that kind of, I was kind of trying to think like the, as this figure of the, of the 20th century, like he is the end of the, well, the symbol of the end of, end of the cold war, um, the systems, the, the, the losing side of the cold war's own, um, embodiment of its own contradictions essentially this you know, as as we've talked about this party man who didn't sort of see this or maybe he did see the centrality of the the party to the um to the to the system you know not to to, to being you know quite crude terms and wasn't able to achieve a, an alternative political project given the constraints um that had emerged out of um the erosion of the the soviet system so i think i mean you don't want to kind of like grade somebody's life and say like they did well or must try harder because you know they've not chanted <laughs> it but it's i mean it, you know a, 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 a massive figure in that in the in i guess creating the the period that that birthed uh, the before the one that birthed this podcast so in in terms the of the end of history the, who was the who was the man who most created the end of history it wasn't fukuyama i mean he wrote about it but Gorbachev did it you know yeah. And so. it's appropriate, I think it's appropriate that he died at the end of the end of history as well. Um, given, you know, given that, like you say, he kind of inaugurated the end of history. 
Yeah, I one final thing to, just that marked me about him is that he, of course, is a figure that rises from rural poverty, um, is able to get an education in this new state that offers that, uh, and rises through a very formal, rigid party structure, but which you know allows ascension if you know how to play by the rules. Um, being kind of cynically, cynically taking out your enemies or kowtowing to to others when uh, when appropriate. And those are features which are just absent from, in many ways, from um, our contemporary world, at least in the West, just because um, the number of politicians who rise from uh, kind of obscurity, both in terms of the provinces and from poverty, tend to be pretty rare, um, just because of the decline in social mobility. And the role of a kind of big party is also um is also kind of limited insofar as it's not a it's not a kind of mass party or with not with as many kind of capillaries across society. So that's kind of very different. And the only place where you do have that and you, where you could still imagine this figure happening would be precisely China. Yeah, I mean, that's partly though a function of modern, you know, the fact that Russia industrialized in this period as well. Yeah. So that you would see like, you know, you'd be likely to have lots of people as Gorbachev, as the review makes the point, Gorbachev and his generation and of the, and the prior generation of Soviet leaders were all kind of um, filtered from the countryside. Uh, they were all beneficiaries to a degree of um, of uh, the kind of bloody industrialization unleashed by Stalin um, and the social mobility associated with it. Yeah. So, um, but that you know, so unless you have a country a country that's undergoing that. You're unlikely to see that kind of um, level of transformation. Like you say, the only place you can really think of it is, I think, you know, China, like you say, I mean, maybe some other kind of Southeast Asian, poor Southeast Asian countries um, and maybe places in Africa. You know, that's probably the only places left where you could imagine that level of um, of kind of uh, social mobility through a particularly in political figures. I might be wrong. I mean, maybe listeners can correct me if they can think of examples, but it is genuinely hard to do so. Yeah, very good. Well, uh, we hope you've enjoyed our discussion here of Gorbachev. And uh, as, as a 20th century figure, uh, let us know what you think. Uh, and uh, if you are a fan of the podcast, uh, please drop us a review. Follow us at BungaCast everywhere uh, you would like to on social media. And we'll be back with another episode in a week's time. Catch you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.